0: earliest really memories are being around ducking. I don't ever remember a time that I wasn't a duck hunter. Hey
1: Adam, before we get started, let's don't forget to mention our sponsors. Yeah, the guys who helped bring this podcast. We couldn't do it without them guess we could but it makes it a lot easier you know that's right shin gear waterfowl equipment that's built better made by waterfowlers for waterfowlers go get you some shin gear miss melissa at duck dog clothing for all your duck dog clothing needs podcast gear check out melissa our website at duck dog clothing Dropbox, go in buy a t-shirt or hat supports us we appreciate it don't forget your wet mud mats and your kong bumpers And if you're not kong jim you're wrong Soggy Dog Gear SoggyDogGear.com Oh, Doug over there at Soggy Dog He's a dog man For all your dog training equipment He's got it there Go to SoggyDogGear.com Be sure on your flat collars To use the discount code The Dog House To get your discount on your flat collars GNG Motors Columbia, Kentucky See Chaz Giles For all your large, small, new and used tractors Chaz Giles at GNG Motors Columbia, Kentucky guys don't forget to check out Tetra the hearing system that works Tetra hear the hunt hear the hunt the Sullivan family has been with us a long time guys it's no longer Sullivan Motors it's Sullivan Kirk Automotive Sullivan Kirk Outfitters for your lift kits and etc cetera, etc cetera. also new and used vehicles those guys have supported us a long time we appreciate it if you support them All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Doghouse Podcast. Um, this will be another one of our little episodes we do. Um, we call them a bonus episode or story time or, um, you can call it whatever you really want to call it, to be honest. But, um, it's just me today. I'm in with my man Casey Short. Um, what's up, my man? How you doing, man? I'm good, buddy. How are you?
0: I'm good, man. Just, uh, Living with this wonderful weather here in the south,
1: <clears throat> man, it's been it's sucked here this year. This has been the worst summer I've had in a long time, hot wise.
0: It's been rough, man. It's gotten real nice this week. uh Your buddy Lauren didn't stick around, did he? <laughs> no, he, he tucked
1: <laughs> it ran pretty quick. So,
0: man, I was down there last week. He was complaining when it was eighty. You and I were like, man, this is nice weather, oh, bro. Man, That's this what is about
1: this is perfect, you know. He was like, good gosh, guys, <laughs> it's hot, you know, and.
0: So, man, no it's not you, you had not seen hot yet it's
1: actually perfect and by the time he left it had gotten pretty warm you know and uh, I think he was he had had enough I think he had yeah. fun while he was here though I'm glad you got to meet him
0: you know? yeah that was cool man I've listened to him on the show uh, just a wealth of, of knowledge that's really cool to, to get to meet him in person
1: yep and he um, you know he he's just he's just a cool guy been super good to me super super good yeah
0: Knows a thing or two about dogs, too.
1: <laughs> he knows which end to feed, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, man. So, look, let's, let's start out by this. Let's tell everybody who you are, and um, and, and we'll kind of go from there.
0: Yeah. So, uh, like you said, I'm case short. I'm the grandson of Bill Byers. So, most people will know. Uh, if you're familiar with me at all, you'll know that social media handle, Bill Byers Hunter Club. <laughs> that is my grandfather's place started it in 1953 guiding duck hunts there so we're about to we'll kick off our 70th year uh wow. we we'll opens here in just a little bit yeah um on that same piece kinda, of property yep yep same piece property in fact our our original clubhouse is still a portion of our lodge today um back in the late 50s early 60s he ran 100 people a day through this little one room building we didn't do any lodging or anything like that it was just kind of Gather up here, get with your guide, and go hunt. But ran a hundred people a day through there and charged ten dollars a head to go on a morning duck hunt in the green timber of Arkansas.
1: <laughs> oh boy, have times changed! Things have changed a little bit, huh? In <laughs> <laughs> seventy years, it's a little different.
0: <laughs> a little different, yep.
1: It ain't. It's not just ducks. It's all walks of life that change. It's crazy, really.
0: Yeah, it is. It's 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 neat. Uh, we're really lucky to. I mean, to go back that far, trace our roots back that far. And we've got a tremendous collection of photographs from back then. Uh, my grandfather was, was friends with a sports writer for the Memphis Commercial Appeal. And he would come over, bring a photographer, or shoot pictures himself. But we've got, man, just stacks of old black and white photos. And they're really cool to go back and look. You go back and look at the old wax canvas. You look at the old Model 12s, the uh, Auto 5s. I man, it's just cool to see you know how things have changed and you know i talk about this a lot people people look back at those black and whites and man look they didn't need camouflage to kill ducks well no but they were using the best stuff that was available at the time you know as as we get smarter and get better so do the ducks
1: right absolutely
0: but yeah that's uh that's kind of where where i got my start a little bit about me at least on the business side of things so i grew up around it um My earliest memories are being around ducking. I don't ever remember a time that I wasn't a duck hunter. Right. Um, Kind of my first, I call it my first job. I wasn't getting paid for it, but I I did it. Um, When we we cleared everything, uh, started clearing stuff in the mid-60s. So like 62, 63, I think Arkansas went to a two-duck 20-day season. Right. Which hunting in the woods was basically one duck. We were killing one mallard. So, um, that place hard. was
1: that place was all green timber, right? That's right, yeah. And, and how, it was, that how much land was it? I don't know
0: if I said that. He originally bought 1,800 acres. Mm-hmm. Uh, he added on to that a couple of times. We ended up with right at 3,000 acres or just That's over true. that. So, and he told me one time, you know, I asked him if we drive around all the time in the summer and he would talk about this piece of property or this land and, oh, I could have bought that, I could have bought this. Why didn't you? And he told me, you know, he, he had committed, he didn't think he could pay off what he agreed to to purchase to start with um so he used the duck hunt to subsidize that to pay for that ground too that was always a right a means of income for that but when it went to two duck in 20 day Mm -hmm. really kind of catapulted him into into farming so that was a you know three decade long process there of clearing all that ground and putting it all into production so when i was a kid it was when i Basically, all we did was grew up hunting fields. We've still got some timber left, a little bit, and we've got some stuff we've restored in the last decade and a half. We uh, cool. tried to do some more of that, but kind of my first my first gig as a, a young kid, we drive. If you followed us much, you've probably seen this, but we drive trucks all the way to our pits to hunt. And once you get those ruts cut in these rice fields, the truck will drive themselves. Like you don't have to hold the wheel or do nothing. So <laughs> my dad my dad would ease it off in the field when I was six years old crank those old trucks and gear because they were all stick shift and once they were in the ruts they would just idle out to the pit so all i had to do when i got there was press the clutch in and turn the key off and that was <laughs> how the guy he would hop in and drive him back up that was my first job was going to get clients <laughs>
1: that's cool man that's a uh, really really cool well,
0: i couldn't see up the steering wheel so it was i guess a good thing it drove itself because i didn't know where i was
1: going that's kind of like me i grew up i learned how to drive in a the hayfield there's a lot of similarities yeah. there
0: yeah, man, it's, I think that's kind of a coming of age thing. You're supposed to learn on the farm, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely,
1: hundred percent. So at fourteen, you started started fooling with. That was your first job there. And uh, when did you? Well, I guess at what point did you start guiding?
0: So and I tagged along, went with other people. You know, kind of helped out for a while. But it, I think I was fourteen when I first started guiding on my own, gotcha. as in, you know, no no help, no supervision, just taking out clients and, and doing the whole thing. So, uh, admit how old I am here, but that's, that's coming on three decades now. I'm doing it on <laughs> my own.
1: <laughs> I know, but we can't hide from it. We have birthdays. <laughs> they coming, and I, I I say, keep them coming, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, like those old labs <laughs> starting to get gray around the muzzle.
1: <laughs> that's ain't no doubt. So that I guess when you started, at what point in time was the two duck 20 day season?
0: I'd have to go back and look exactly. I think that was 62, 63, you know, that season, and then the following 64, 65. I want to say it was right there in the early 60s. It was just a, a two year back to back. Uh, and things were a lot different. You know, we all, we've been 27 years now with liberal framework under AHM, which is adaptive harvest management. Mm-hmm. So you, you date back that far into the 50s and 60s, it was really kind of a knee jerk reaction to, to waterfowl. You know, we didn't, we didn't know a lot. Um, in fact, just last week, the, the B pop, the breeding population numbers came out right. um, from us fish and wildlife. Well, that study didn't officially start until 1955. So we're, we're talking about a time frame in waterfowl management when we didn't really understand what the population of waterfowl was. So kind of the wild west. Uh, and then it evolves into the, the point system and, you know, the lead band and some other things. The point system was really crazy, uh, if you ever, if you ever heard us talk about that, that was a wild right, before, framework to hunting.
1: Before you move on from the two and 20, what was it before that? Cason? for, for me, before I don't two. know but for everybody else too. You know, what was the the limits and the law?
0: So we started, I think limits started in the thirties. I've got it somewhere. I wish I had pulled it up before we started. Um, I want to say we had some like there were some four and forty. It changed almost annually. Gotcha. Um, There were some four, you know, four ducks sixty day season. I want to say at one point we may have had seventy days prior to that. Hmm. So there were some pretty liberal seasons going on before the fifties, before we really started doing enough research to know, hey, might have been a little too aggressive on that.
1: Right. Um. So it it changed to two and twenty, and then it's been. Then it went into the point system.
0: Well, there was a good bit of time in between two and twenty, and then the point system about twenty years there. So we bounced around kind of in that, that four, four duck limit there for a while, which kind of gave way to the point system. Uh, you know, in the point system, Ma- a mallard drake was twenty five points. I think a hen was fifty. Um, a canvasback black duck were hundred points. Pintails were ten points, so you could kill ten pintail. So the, that in perspective for you, the,
1: the top out pay was a hundred points. That's all you could, that's all you could go to.
0: That's so it was whichever duck put you over a hundred, which was kind of the interesting thing. So if you killed a mallard hen first, you could kill two drakes. You'd be limited out at three. If you shot three drakes first and then killed a hen, you could kill four and you weren't over your limit because it was the hen that
1: put you over a hundred. Oh,
0: gotcha. So what that led to, people would, would kill ducks out of order, stuff them in a log and try to keep their body temperature warm because the game wardens would run around with a thermometer and shove it up their butt and try to figure out what order you killed your duck and see if you were lying about when you killed your your, your bird that put you over the 100-point mark.
1: No kidding. So that's the way they kept up with it. I mean, that's the way they tried to. They tried yeah. to.
0: Surely that don't to. hold up, right? You know, I don't, I know at the time you heard people – you know, getting checked or getting tickets. I'm sure some people got tickets and didn't fight it. There's got to be somewhere someone that did fight it. I don't know how. I don't know how that would stand up in court, because um, there's so many factors that would lead to body temperature and how that would change. And but it just goes to show. And the, the point system really was it was pretty crazy trying to keep up with it. I have trouble today keeping count with a group of clients, and, and we know exactly what it is. There's no there's no math involved, you know. So it really. It may not have been that bad of a system. It just was really tough to implement it.
1: Right. It had it had good intentions, is what what you could say. But, way putting it, yeah, it and putting it, making it happen is would be hard. I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The application of it was tough, and it shows too. Like again, I mentioned the, the pintail at ten point. You, you look at the opportunity to go out and kill ten pintail and be within your limit. It's kind of insane in today's world. I know. In that pop, the numbers are up a little bit this year, which is great for pintail, but it shows you, you know, back in the 70s just how strong that population was compared to where we're at today. And right. A lot of that has to do with modern farming and, and tile drainage and all that up there in the in the pothole country.
1: Right. Um, and I want to touch on modern farming and the impact that it's made a little bit later on, so don't let me forget that. Um, okay. So from there the point system and the, did, did we go from the point system to the six duck limit
0: where we're at now no we came came out of the point system and i think we went directly into a three duck 30 day um there could have been a four year I mean, excuse me a four duck 40 day season in there but pretty directly went to three and 30 there through the 80s and early 90s um so we kind of a lot of things, I guess, happened there. The, dry, the severe drought in the prairie. We knew duck numbers were dropping. So when they when they changed out of the point system, it was to a more restrictive framework.
1: Right. Got gotcha. you. And I guess that that B pop. What what happens? Uh, is it's going to affect the future. There's no doubt about it. How far out? Just to say, we had you know the last couple of years has been a drought. I think it's been kind of dry up there this year, right?
0: Yeah, the drought index came out last week um and it's showing again, you know, a pretty pretty good drought. So in conjunction with the breeding population, they also released their May pond count. It's actually done at the same time. They fly one survey for both of those. So the breeding population is down and in conjunction with that the Maypon count is down. So they literally it's the time of year they count these ponds, but they, they count, you know, how many physical bodies of water are on these transects that they fly. So when may ponds are down, when habitat is diminished and you've got lower recruitment, you've got less hatch. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have one number that you can look at that the breeding population says, okay, there's this many ducks on the landscape at the time of breeding, this many adults. And then with the may ponds, you can kind of look and say, all right, well, if if these are down this year, then we should expect less recruitment, uh, less reproduction. So saying both of those, I don't have high expectations for a lot of young birds this year i feel like we're going to have a kind of lean year especially on the mallard front there's some species that are up a little bit but by and large I mean, everything kind of hinges on the mallard
1: right 100 percent. that's it's crazy how they can keep up with it and, and how all that affects you know what's coming in the future i guess the 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 60 days the season is set off not this year but what's previously had before
0: correct That's correct. They they set them kind of far in advance now, and that was the the goal of adaptive harvest management was to kind of set this long term average and stop adjusting seasons in a knee jerk reaction. You know, every year it was let's get a long term average. Let's let's make more controlled decisions versus reactionary decisions. So, yeah, you're seeing seasons like they've already you know kind of set what we're going to do for next year already. These numbers are coming out, so that's going to drive things a little further down the line. So it's um, a lot more stable and that's why you I mean, it works that's why you've seen 27 years of the framework that we've currently got because they've kind of levied it all leveled off and figured out what what it takes to stay in that in that rain right. range excuse me right
1: Huh. cool so all right so I, i've got something else i want to throw at you um yeah modern farming practices okay um if it's dry in canada they get to farm more ground ground that we, we we really hope that would we'll be wet, correct?
0: Yeah. So you, you, what you're talking about there a little bit is called swamp busters. So there's some provisions there and that doesn't always apply to Canada. I'm not real sure on their stuff. I know a little bit more about the U S side, just from having been to DC and talked about the farm bill, but basically a farmer, let's talk about the Dakotas. So I'm not speaking about something I don't know anything about. Okay. A farmer can farm down to the water's edge, you know, whatever he can access, uh, the farm busters provision prevents them from actually going in and draining these wetlands. So in a dry year, they can farm further down, just like when your ponds dry up, you can bush hog closer to the edge, right? Correct. Same thing with farming. So what kind of happens there in these dry year and then another dry year and another dry year, these wetlands get smaller and smaller and they're farming more of it. And now if you do have some water, it's backed out into, you know, clean dirt or an area that doesn't have, you know, a couple of years of vegetation to support that nesting cover.
1: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right. So that's one way that I wanted to kind of get an idea of how it affected it. Also, you know, with these newer, you hear this a lot. I hear people say this a lot. The new, the new combines and the new farming practices yeah. leave nothing. Where in, in right. the old so days, they say there used to be a lot of grain left behind. That would fall, you know, fall through the cracks per se. Is that true? Or yes. is that just something I've always heard, you know?
0: No, hundred percent. That's absolutely true. And, and I can <laughs> go a little further than that. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about, you probably have heard it mentioned, it's called the give up threshold.
1: And what that. that
0: means, so that what the give up threshold is, there is a, a certain amount of grain on the ground, a threshold where let's say, I want to say maybe it's 60 pounds per acre. So anything below 60 pounds per acre of waste grain in rice is no longer worth the caloric expenditure for a duck to find it, meaning he's burning more calories than he's going to get by eating there. So when it gets below 60 pounds per acre, they give up and go somewhere else. Um, Now, you you can use a lot of different numbers, and it's hard to figure out exactly, but by my estimation, we're somewhere around – maybe hundred pounds per acre when we leave a field. Now that's in clear field rice with no weeds, you know, no wild millets, no grasses, no, no trash. That's a clean mm-hmm. rice field. So we're almost at the give up threshold when we leave in August or September. Now, according to Brian Davis, 70% of that waste grain is going to be gone by season anyway. So now we've lost 70 pounds and suddenly we're below the give up threshold before the first duck gets here right and that's some of the modern farming now what what leads to that 70 percent number there's a lot of other things that lead to that i mentioned that we're cutting in august or september so now you've got that many more warm days for germination and that's become normal farming practice too because we've got this long layover between harvest and you know winter and wet months you see a lot of fall tillage so a lot of farmers are going to come in they're going to disc they're going to run a kelly tool or some, you know, hair across the field to start dealing with the residue. Mm-hmm. that's one of our big issues with rice farming is you've got to get rid of that stubble. you got to get it wet. you got to get it dirty to get it broke down for the next farming season. So you see a lot more fall tillage. Well, that waste grain needs two things to germinate. It needs soil contact and it needs moisture. So when you turn it under and you put sunlight on the ground, it's going to, it's got plenty of soil contact. Right. And then, mm-hmm. You get any kind of moisture at all it's going to germinate and usually you've got moisture in a rice field because it was wet you know 14 days before we cut it anyway so mm-hmm. the timing of the crop has probably more to do with the loss of weight grain waste grain as anything um even if we were leaving a ton of grain on the ground so much of it would germinate anyway and when i was a kid back in the early 80s we were lucky to even start cutting rice by the end of september now we're we're done you know unless it's a Unless something's going on wrong in planting season, we're done by September 10th.
1: That's, a, that's, that's crazy. And that's, that's just modern farming practices that the advancements that you guys have made has is, is gotten there, right?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. And we just, a rice field is not what it used to be. You don't see as much weeds and trash and wild millets like they used to be. We've gotten really good at keeping them clean. Uh, and then again, the combine, I want to say, are like 98% efficient now. So you just don't run much out the back. And what you do put out the back, most of it germinates and it's gone. So you're, you're really kind of managing a with a little different than you used to. A lot of, a lot of it now is invertebrate population that you can kind of manage. When that residue, when that stubble starts to break down, you get a pretty good invertebrate population. You get a lot of mallards feeding off of that. So it's just a different landscape than it was 15, 20, 30 years ago. And on the, on the flip side of that, you, you go to our neighbors to the north, And you've got more no-till farming. You've got more corn that you didn't used to have. So now you've got waste grain that's being left on top of the ground that didn't used to exist there. So you kind of have an abundance of food to the north and a deficit here in Arkansas and places south of us. So it's no wonder people claim, well, I don't see the mallards I used to. Well, they've got – and this is not a standing corn thing. Like I'm, I'm not one of those guys, but you just look at the math. There's waste grain to the north. There's less waste grain here in the south, and it makes sense.
1: Makes sense. That's I mean, and that's something that I've never I've never really thought about, you know, because you hear, you know, they standing corn, hot water ponds, standing corn, you know (laughs) you know, you hear all that. It's changing the it's changing the ducks and changing them the way they migrate and whatnot, but there's a lot more to it that's that than just that. And probably that has nothing to do with it, it at all,
0: honestly. Well, if you go look at harvest data, like go look at Missouri harvest data or anybody else, and the numbers don't show that. They don't show an increase, you know, this massive increase in, in harvest. It's not like all of a sudden Missouri is killing more mallards than Arkansas. It's just not the case. I mean, the the food situation is different, and that's changing some things. But, you know, usually their harvest is down, our harvest is down. It kind of goes hand in hand.
1: Um. All right. Since we're on the topic here, I guess you know, kind of detour a little bit of kind of what I have planned, but let's talk about you know uh, habitat, creating new habitat, and and I guess quote unquote farming for ducks. Do, do you do that on your place there at, at Bill Byers?
0: Yep, we do. Yeah. Well, we we try to we try to make every decision. I mean, based on you know how to how can we serve two masters, right? Like how can we be a productive, profitable farm and how can we make decisions that, that impact and leave a positive influence on ducks. So you know, we've got some areas that are marginal that we, have we've got some CRP, we've got some other timber projects. Um, we've got some areas that, that don't grow beans very well. So we'll go in when that's in bean rotation and try to grow some food in those areas. Um, and a lot of it, you know, can be done after the season or even before season comes in. Uh, As soon as we get our first combine out of the field, we're going to put water on the ground. We're going to start holding some water for early teal. We'll have speckle bellies on the ground, usually the end of September now. That used to be kind of the first week of October, but we're now starting to see in the last week of September. Mm. So, and yeah, that's beneficial to us in hunting. Uh, We have a really good, you know, early population of speckle wellies, but it takes away from our duck hunting too, because we're burning up a lot of food to feed them that early in the year. Correct. Um, on the flip side of that, we will hold water later. A lot of our neighboring farmers are trying to drain fields in January, you know, into January, like they're going to put a plow in the ground the next week. Well, and that's not the case. It's going to stay wet, but we try to leave water as late as we can. Um, we try to let every duck, you know, sit here and get as healthy as it can before it makes that trek back north. So there's a lot that you can do, even on an active farm, you know, just little decisions that don't take away from farming. And then there's, a, you know, there's other decisions that are a little bit tougher, like taking ground out of production. That's always a, a huge commitment. Hmm. Uh, w, WRE and some of those programs help incentivize farmers uh, you know, to make that call, especially on marginal ground.
1: And that would be wetland restoration?
0: Wetland Reserve easement it used to be Sorry. Wetland Reserve program. Now they call it WRE. Gotcha. Gotcha.
1: And that's just a way to 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 ease some of the the blow for turning that back into habitat.
0: Right. So if you go like a permanent easement, they will they will pay you a per acre fee uh, to grant them the easement. You know, basically that you can never clear it and farm it again, and then they'll come in and restore it through some combination of moist soil unit and timber project to That's kind right. of kind of put it back like it was.
1: Right. Um, t- talk about a moist soil unit. Well, t- explain to people what that is. And I know a lot of you guys that that do that type of stuff love a moist soil.
0: Well, I mean, the, the best thing about it is it's natural. Most mm-hmm. of the time Mother Nature knows better than we do, right? Right. Uh, so a moist soil unit is basically – it's just an area that you can control flood on, so you can you can keep water on it all year if you want and have almost zero vegetation, or you can draw the water down like you want. If managed properly, it's a slow drawdown throughout the summer, so you hold flood on it pretty late in the year, May and June. You'll start letting some water down off of it in a slow drawdown, and even a little bit earlier than that. I'm sorry, but you'll uh, you control through soil disturbance and. Through your flood, you can control what type of aquatic vegetation comes up in it, and there's some other outside influences that you have to do. But basically, you're trying to keep the desirable aquatic species that are good for waterfowl and get rid of the other stuff that you don't want to deal with. And it ends up making a really, really, really good food source. One because it's aquatic, so they last longer in the water. Mm-hmm. An example of that is like soybeans, right? So a lot of guys don't want to hunt a soybean field in Arkansas. The reality is, when you first flood a soybean field, it's very very hot. Ducks love it. Mm-hmm. The Problem is, a soybean will sour in the water in like twenty four hours. They don't last very long. And a moist soil unit, you've got seeds that will go forty five, sixty, or even longer days underwater and not rot. So you've got a longer food source that you know lasts longer, and it's very desirable by ducks too.
1: Does is, does the moist soil create? Does it create a lot of invertebrates also?
0: Yes. It does. And it, it's just I mean, it's as it's as natural as it's the reason ducks came, you know, down the Mississippi Flowey to begin with. It's it's right. like those old swamps, you know, that kind of dried up on their own in the summertime. I mean it's you're just manipulating that for the benefit of the ducks and to make it a little bit better than it would do on its own.
1: Right. Cool. I've always been interested in a moist soil unit and and, and how they work and I, they're just a natural part of it. I've always liked that no just listen there's a lot of other
0: benefits yeah a lot of other benefits outside of food too you get a lot of vertical cover which produces a thermal barrier so you've got ducks that'll use it just because they can get away from the cold in it right get out of the wind down in it um and then because it's good vertical cover they're not as exposed to raptors so they're safer in it they'll tolerate more traffic around there they'll tolerate neighbors hunting closer to it they just feel safe in it um it's just it's got a lot going for it
1: Mm -hmm. um and i guess is it does a mallard like that seclusion more so than a lot of other ducks or do you do you say a lot of the other puddle ducks will end up trying to use that too uh
0: a lot of them use it i would say maybe a mallard likes it more so than others but most of your your dabbling ducks like it you know i mean we've we see divers in them too. It's uh, always interesting to see a bunch of scot buzzing around through there. But uh, most of them will take advantage of it. Now, our mallards make up our you know most dominant duck here, so that probably skews what we're seeing a little bit. But uh, mallard and teal especially like it.
1: And I, what makes a, a mallard so attractive to the woods? Why why do why do you kill a high high percentage of mallards in the woods versus other ducks? Oh, I'm, I'm, I going off, I'm going off track here. Anna.
0: <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I don't know that I have that answer. I guess <laughs> eons of evolution. Uh, you know, their diet, uh, not a lot of other ducks are big enough to eat acorns like that. And this is all speculation. I, I don't know that answer. Um, but I'm going to say their body type, they're able to eat those acorns when they are feeding in acorns. A uh, little bit harder of a duck, you know, you don't see a lot of... You know, you see some teal in the woods, but not many. But it's just diet makeup and how they've evolved over over the generations, centuries.
1: Right. I, I mean, it's true though. You do see a predominantly a mallard in the woods. And, oh and, yeah.
0: I mean, and, you don't you don't shoot much else.
1: No. And I and I've heard, you know, through the years, just kind of studying around and listening that that uh, your population of mallards using a piece of woods is relative to your acorn. Uh, produce that year
0: is that have you heard that there's probably some truth to that um we had brian davis on our podcast here a couple weeks ago right. and talked about kind of managing for an invertebrate population in the woods and i think that's kind of an unsung aspect of timber is i think the ducks are really I and mean, they do eat acorns no one is going to argue that but i think they're also eating invertebrates more than we might really know they did a uh he was involved in a pretty good study on that with some really cool data.
1: What do you remember any of that? That data? I mean, stuff like that intrigues uh, me.
0: Yeah, so I, I can. Uh, it won't do any good to your listeners right now, but I can text you a link to it. I've got it somewhere. <laughs> but uh, no, one of the interesting takeaways that I that I got from it was the the depth of flood uh, ideally like four to six inches, and I think the big the big thing was that ducks if you, this was in gtrs where you could control the flood right right that they wanted that that kind of four inch range you know shallow water was the best for bugs and that as the flood increased you know they would kind of follow them up up the hill if you will on that water line yeah um so I, that was a neat takeaway because a lot of guys man they want to flood their woods deep enough I want to run a boat you know i gotta get a boat in my woods and then you've got it so deep that the, the birds can't even get in there and eat like they want to so i think that's kind of Maybe a thing that a lot of guys don't understand about the woods and how to manage food sources in the woods.
1: Was, was that the podcast he was talking about? It may not have been the one that you're talking about, but he was talking about the willows and how they produce a high number of invertebrates, the willow trees. Uh, Maybe I heard that somewhere else. I can't remember, but
0: he may have talked about that. I'm not sure. I know we talked about willows a little bit. Um, that's funny you mentioned that. We we're talking about killing mallards in the woods. Always think about that when somebody you know posts something on social media about you know, oh, killing ducks in the timber, and they post a bunch of gadwall or something. I'm like, that looks more <laughs> like a willow tree hunt than a timber <laughs> hunt.
1: But hey, I love hunting I in the willows.
0: Oh man, they, oh, hey, we've got a, a bunch in our CRP and you know, other areas. we reforested. Man, they're early successional habitat. They're going to come up on their own, but. Like you and I talked about the other day, only badly about hunting in young willow trees so I can't get skinny enough to hide behind them. <laughs> I know it. I know it, boy. But I'm, man, they'll hold ducks, man. They hold ducks.
1: Absolutely. That's three hundred pound my and hide behind a hundred and twenty five pound willow tree. <laughs> <laughs> That's tough for me. So, especially in January.
0: Oh yeah, no leaves left on them, and it's 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 barren out there. You better have some good grass and cattails growing up there. Anyway. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. So and the bad bad part about cattails, you come out wearing them all.
1: Oh, I know it. I'd be sneezing and everything and things. Yeah, they're awful, all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ease back on track, with kind of what we have planned here, what I have planned, and um and, and kind of talk about we were talking about the changes in the point system and the limits and stuff. What are some other changes in changes in the in the duck industry that you've kind of seen through the years? Cause I have only been doing this about 10 years or so. So I haven't been just duck hunting my whole life. Like you have.
0: Uh, And it's been, I'll state the obvious, a lot of changes, right? So social media is a a big difference. uh, And that's here pretty recently. I think that maybe changes people's perspective on things a lot. So, people lose sight that you're just you're watching a highlight reel you know you're not seeing real life every time somebody posts something so i think that's driven maybe some of the mindset about duck hunting um maybe in in some ways we've lost track of what the sport really is about i mean we all love to kill it we wouldn't go do it right but it's it's clearly it's no longer a subsistence sport we're not all killing ducks just to survive so right it's about the experience and camaraderie and all these things. But I think maybe in some ways, social media has kind of made it more about the kill or the grip and grin pick, you know, I'm not Correct. saying social media made mainly bad. A lot of people blame stuff on social media, but it's just changed people's perspective. And that's the biggest thing that jumps off the page. There's been a lot of changes. Like we talked about with modern farming has changed things. Um, we've seen a lot of guys in our area, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, you had a lot of landowners that were happy to catch water and leave water just for the ducks. They didn't, they didn't lease it. They didn't want people hunting on it. They just did it because that's what you, that's what you do, right? Correct. Nowadays, if somebody's leaving water, they've got someone paying for a lease and it's getting hunted. So I would say that we don't necessarily have any more neighbors around us now than we did in 1985, but we don't have as many neighbors that flood and don't don't hunt it. So it's more concentrated. So I guess pressure has gone up, even though the the number of duck hunters feels similar, but pressure has gone up. That's been an increase. Um, I don't know, man. Hunting gear has changed. You know, surface drives, we can get anywhere we want to now. ATVs, like you can access every inch of the earth, basically. Right. Couldn't do that for forever.
1: Well, I guess, so, and we're not, we're, just to kind of reiterate what you're saying there's if a field is flooded there's dudes in there hunting
0: yeah yeah it's got guns in it every most of the time all day every day yeah
1: right what i mean so while we're on pressure how do you manage pressure i you know we can't manage pressure all, everywhere but how do you manage your pressure on your place
0: well so i'll back up to your previous question real quick and then we'll talk about pressure uh, i should have mentioned white fronts okay so we've seen the greater white fronted goose, the speckled I mean, from basal, basic non-existence in Arkansas to being a nearly preferred species over a mallard. I mean, it has exploded in popularity um, in the last 30-plus years. So that's, as far as a, a resource side, that's the biggest change we've seen. Now, you asked about pressure. We, uh, so we don't use headlights. We go out in the dark Um we try not to get there super early i really want to i want to step back in the blind with my clients about 30 seconds before shooting like um because we're going to get birds up out of the fields that we're in so we don't use headlights when we go out because we're driving through a roost all the way to where we're going so we don't want to disturb them any more than possible we close 95 percent of our roads through duck season uh there's places we don't drive unless we have to We try just anything we can to not disturb them and it's amazing to me we see uh see guys all around us you know guiding and they've got the light bars man you see them from miles away matter of fact it makes it tough for us to get out in the morning because they're blinding us but I don't think they realize how many birds they're running off in the vicinity of those lights now I know some places it's not an issue you know you're hunting on public timber down the bottoms it's not a big deal but out here in the fields you're just disturbance and it it adds up and then but the other thing, when we don't afternoon hunt, um, we we quit at 9.30. You know, by 9.30, we've either, we've either gotten it done or it's time to, to go to the house anyway. It's not going to change a whole lot. Sure, we could sit around, maybe scratch out a that we stayed there all day, but it's just going to make the day after that even worse. So it's, I think it's a lot better in the long run to, to go ahead and leave because that's the one thing we can control. We can control pressure. I can't make it get cold up north. I can't make the ducks migrate. I can't make them make more babies on the nesting ground this year, but I can control how we impact them. So that's the single biggest tool we use is pressure.
1: Control what you can control.
0: That's right. Control the controllable.
1: Control the controllables. That's it. That's your saying. I've heard you say that before.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've been listening too much.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's neat though, You know the no lights. Um, and I guess if you have a place that holds a lot of ducks at night. And if you think about ways you can get there without disturbing them, that would that would make a difference too, huh? If you could drive well, around. Think about,
0: yeah. Think about deer hunters, man. You're going in bow hunting, you don't want to bust that buck off his bed. You want to slip in, right? Same thing, same thing with duck hunting. If you've got birds that are spending the night there, you need to do your best to get by them before you get in to hunt.
1: Right, right. And, and I, then let
0: them let them have their area to rest too. I mean, they they've got to have an area that they can sit down and not get shot at you want to ruin a place as quick as possible, hunt it all day, every day and see what happens. Right. Right. And it's, and it's, it's amazing to me. I'll, I'll talk to neighbors who go out and the hunt or even guys that hit me up on the internet, you know, man, we hunted Saturday. I mean, How'd you do? Well, we killed seven. And you know, we went back that afternoon. We didn't see any, like, we went Sunday too. We didn't see a duck on Sunday, but like, well, why would you? <laughs> I mean, you didn't let anything get back in there. Why would it show up <laughs> magically on Sunday? Like there's not some duck fairy in the sky that just, deposits ducks on you every day like they've got to want to be there uh now obviously running traffic in the river bottoms and all that's a little bit different but you know in the fields like they got to want to be there and the same is true in the woods i mean the, the floods got to be right they got to want to be in an area they're not just going to magically appear i i like it that's good
1: stuff man i i appreciate you sharing your knowledge because <laughs> that, that made me really think about some stuff
0: you know I think we lose sight of that sometimes. You know, like people are surprised that, that ducks are quote-unquote nocturnal. I don't know why we're surprised by that. You know, Deer hunters have known that for generations. You Pressure that old buck. He's going to get to where he doesn't show up except at night. Well, that mallard duck's not any different either, especially when we talk about years with low recruitment. So we're looking at older age class ducks. Look, they've been here before. They know what's going on, and they make a living surviving. They're not stupid. If they are, they don't live. That's their, that's their
1: whole goal in life is surviving. That's right. At least it is from September the first to January the thirty first.
0: And think about what they have at their disposal, man they can they can swim and they have wings. They can go anywhere they want to and get away from you, and they're going to do it at, at all cost.
1: I agree. What about um? I it's I, I don't want to. This is my – I don't know how I want to word this, Cason. Um <laughs> like st- starting, you know, these ducks start to get hunted in Canada on September the 1st, right? And yep. they're shot at from there all the way to here. How much of an impact does that have on a duck, you think?
0: It's got to be substantial. You know, I don't I don't know that I remember as a kid ever going out on the first day of season and say, man, these ducks are call shy. But I swear <laughs> the last few years, it feels like the first day of season, you go out and say that, and it's, I mean, no surprise, even though season wasn't open here, and they just came from Missouri or somewhere else where it was open, or they bounced back in Louisiana where it opened before us. So right. it's got to have a huge impact. You can look at it. In Arkansas alone, there's a – God, I wish I remember the day. From, from early teal season until the end of – snow goose conservation season there's like seven or eight days i could be it may be lower than that seven or eight days that you can't hunt waterfowl of some kind now sure duck season's closed some days but then you know you got conservation goose seasons in in between right now some people are going to say well they're not hunting ducks well no but it's still disturbance of some kind those birds are still hearing gunshots so that's just in arkansas man how much how much do you think that affects them?
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: mean, we're talking September to April.
1: Well, I,
0: I I get it. Pretty pretty crazy. It's got to have an impact. I think that's if there was one thing that I would that I would want to see changed, it's some of the conservation season stuff. I, I'd want to see some of that reined in. Um, and we can this will, this is a whole rabbit hole we're about to go down here, but. So the conservation season for snow geese, so the light goose conservation order, it's not a season, it's a, it's an order. It's approved through Congress, I think. But its original plan, intention was to harvest adult snow geese to control the population. And it is not doing that. It's not harvesting adults. Now, in a roundabout way, it is kind of achieving its desired goal because it's killing juvenile birds that then don't become adults. But it's a, it is not a season provided for in the framework. It's something set aside in and of itself. And it's not achieving its desired goal. There's a lot of people who are going to be upset by me saying this, but I'm not the first one. Texas is already looking at reining it in. They think that it's bad for their overall goose hunting and it's hurting their state. So there's some people that are starting to, to ask questions about it. And it's not, I don't think, I think the pressure, the harm from the pressure outweighs the, the good of, being able to go and shoot them and it's become a big business I know there's a lot of people that do it and love it but I think it's got a lot of unintended consequences too right and
1: it's not getting the desired you know results that they really want thought it would get huh
0: no some of the 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 data that came out early on about the tundra was one specific area and it's not as accurate as we were led to believe that it was so they don't really pose the the threat or the issue that that we were kind of sold when the conservation order was approved. So just might be time to kind of revisit that or, or reevaluate that. Right.
1: I I don't like doing it anyway myself.
0: I don't, I don't care for it. I don't do it. So. <laughs> and it's easy to have my opinion when you're not tied up in it.
1: So right. Absolutely. That's it. Yeah. hundred percent. All right. So let's, let's dive into some of the, some of the really cool research and stuff that you've done there uh, at, at the Bill Byers Hunter Club
0: yeah so this is supposed to be a quick short episode right you're gonna yeah. bore your guys to death listening to this <laughs> uh <laughs> that, so this is good stuff I, well I, i'm a i guess i come by naturally i'm a i'm a duck nerd uh my grandfather long before resident canada geese were a, a thing he noticed that we were starting to lose migrating canada geese here in the state they weren't coming back year to year so he started raising canada geese with was very involved in that. It was kind of a passion project to his. So we had at his house here a little ways away from our farm, he had 40 acres that was fenced in. And he raised Canada geese there and go out and feed them every day, you know, through the winter. Well, lo and behold, speculay started showing up and going out and eating when he would feed his Canada geese. I mean laying in his yard basically. So he just keeps, putting out more food and then more of them start showing up. And again, I'll say this for those listening at home. This is not on our farm. We were not hunting there. This is not baiting. So, (laughs) but so he starts getting 10 or 15,000 white fronts in there every day. in this little 40 acre pen. people are stopping on the highway. They're taking pictures. It was, I mean, a sight to see It's really, really neat. And we're up there, I'm there all the time, you know, and see this truck there a couple of days in a row. Man, what is this guy doing? Finally stop and talk to him. And he is a grad student. Who's out there with a spotting scope recording uh, these color marked birds? These net collars—they got three-digit code on them, right? Right. So he's re- he's reading these net collars right now in the location, the day, and all this stuff, and sending them back. And that was—he was getting paid mileage and something else to do it as a grad project. I was like, well, hell, I can do that. So that's where it started. I start recording numbers, and I mean, over a hundred different birds a year we would record there in that little pen and send those in and started got in touch with a head of Canadian wildlife services that was doing that study. So we were reporting on these numbers, you know, kind of early on contributing to the study of white fronts. And this was in 90, 92. Um, so that was really cool data to get back, you know, as a 11, 12 year old kid They're you know, they're sending us information like, okay, well, these birds were put on in this part of the world and this is where else they were seen. And for a young kid, I mean, that was, really eye-opening to me where they came from, Mm -hmm. where they're going. So that really kind of started my love affair with white fronts. So flash forward almost 30 years, running this guy on Instagram who's studying white fronts in Southwest Louisiana. And his research is trying to figure out why has Louisiana saw the tremendous decline in white fronts. And and obviously as they've lost them, Arkansas has picked them up. So I reached out to him like, Hey, you know, we get this many birds you know 150,000 white fronts in October first part of November would you want to come up here and, and, and put some transmitters on up here and see where these birds go and really until I sent him a bunch of videos I don't think he believed me about the numbers we were wintering there early in the fall but he finally agrees he was like yeah he's like let's do it I'm like all right when you want to come he's like well you know you need ten thousand dollars or more i like wait, I got to do what? <laughs> so we had to fund all the units. Uh, and I understand why his money was all raised in Louisiana. So he did not, his, his donors didn't want to see their money go to research, quote unquote, in Arkansas, even mm-hmm. though it all works together, you know? So we were lucky. Uh, we had a friend who whose boss, a big landowner here nearby that was passionate about it, got involved, got it funded the first year. So we caught the very first white fronts ever caught in the state of Arkansas were caught right here on, on the farm. Um, we deployed, I think, 12 transmitters the first year and then trans, uh, deployed some more the following year. So we did there two years in a row. And then luckily the Arkansas Game of Fish got on board and started uh, banding and, and donating units, not donating. They were putting them out themselves. So we got Arkansas on the board in the study and then subsequently Missouri got on as well. So when, when that thing is all said and done, it will be the most comprehensive study conducted on a species of waterfowl wow so pretty i mean pretty cool there to, to to play a small role in that and i and i say small because it really was compared to how many units have gone out and how much data they've got like it was a pretty small deal but a lot of fun and man it will really really change how you look at a banding operation and bands in general i don't know if you've ever you ever helped band anything before but if you ever get the chance man go do it um i totally i mean, there's still trophies you know i I think it's cool anytime time we kill a band. But when you – especially on that front, you know, early in the year like that, Rocket Nets, it took us – I think the first day we trapped, we were here like six or seven days. I don't, do you remember the running gun tour, like Yeti, rig Wright, Vanelli, all that stuff? I don't think so. So they, they were here. I mean, we had a ton of people here, like six or seven days, and just anything that could go wrong went wrong. The Eagles would, would run the birds off of where we had the nets set. Uh, a mouse with you a wire into like you just can't understand how much work goes into catching a few birds and banding them until you've done it so now you know you'll see it on instagram somebody will kill one of these birds with a transmitter and i get it man they're excited and i totally understand why but i see that bird and think man what poor guy laid in the mud for four days in a row and freezing cold to push that button to send that rocket net to band that thing you know, <laughs> there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes
1: um so, what have y'all got any data back from your from your study so far, or do you, or what are you seeing?
0: Yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting. We've seen a lot of stuff, and and some of it kind of early on is anecdotal, but you get to see a lot of stuff. Like uh, if you remember, maybe three years ago, we had that really hard freeze in February, right around oh, yeah. Valentine's Day. Oh yeah. Um. So we we got to watch how birds react to a freeze that severe that late in the year and it was interesting to see how many of them made the choice to hunker down and ride it out and you you know we've heard a lot of people say that that once a bird is going north they really don't want to turn around and go back south right Right. so that was kind of a theory up until you've got these GPS transmitters and now we see it you know at first hand you know where that bird's sitting and you also know you know how many birds that, that front killed um, and it was a bunch of them we lost a lot of transmitters in that one so that's pretty neat. We got involved in mallards too. Uh, we had a mallard hen who came back. Uh, see, we we released her February twenty second. Um, we caught her on my anniversary. My, my wife was thrilled, that I was over here abandoning ducks instead of celebrating <laughs> our anniversary. But I guess she's she's used to stuff like that. So anyway, we good woman. Let this duck- <laughs> Yeah, she is for sure. We uh, let this duck go in February. So she comes back uh, within a half mile, you know, the next duck season. She's here a week before season opens, and she's already feeding at night in the field we released her in. So she's spending her, her days in the woods and is feeding at night, and this is before the first gunshot in Arkansas. And I thought that was interesting. So I mean she was nocturnal again, when she came here. When she got here, yep. And we saw several of them that year. Uh, we had mallards that got back. Who never saw enough sunlight to charge their, ba- their battery on their solar pack? They were spending daytime in the woods out of the sun and at night they'd go out and feed.
1: Unbelievable.
0: That's pretty crazy, isn't it?
1: So at that point you lose contact until it charges back up, or how does that work?
0: Yep. Yep. They just go offline and then when they charge, they'll, they'll store that data and then when they come back online, they'll dump it um, all. But back cool. to the white ones, we see a lot about kind of how they disperse um you got some cool maps showing here on the farm where a lot of the birds that were banned in louisiana come through here it's it's amazing to see how many transmitters come through this little spot and and you got to know we've been putting water on the landscape for white fronts for over 30 years um you've kind of become a landmark for them and where they migrate and, and those maps show that um and it's interesting to see, you know, once season starts, especially this early spec season, I'm not a big fan of it. We, we participate in it now, but I don't really like it. But you see, you know, they, they congregate in these areas. They make these long, you know, 24-hour, 36-hour flight. They, they leave Prairie, Canada, and they don't touch the ground until they get right here on the farm. And then the next morning they get shot at, you know. So it it changes them. They spread out. They're acting differently. Um, and I think that's something else that needs some some more observation is, pressure on, on them through that early season mm-hmm. and that's a great opportunity you know it's it's a lot of fun they're they're fun to hunt that time of year but i'm not sure that that's necessarily the right thing either to shoot them as soon as they get here i, I think we should take a little pressure off of them but that's but, my opinion
1: when i get here you, you're saying let them get here and then disperse some and then hunt them a little bit
0: yeah, a lot like our ducks. You know, I mean, I know we we open our duck season pretty early in November, but we've got ducks here for weeks before we shoot them. I would like to see the same with the white fronts. I think letting them get here, letting them kind of get established, because that's the first thing they're going to do. I mean, they're the ones that survive are boringly predictable. They find a tiny little area they don't get shot at and they don't deviate from it until it rains. Rain is what kills birds because when it rains. They break their cycle. They go out somewhere they hadn't been before, and they get shot. So mm. what we're doing is we're not letting them get that chance to kind of figure out where they want to be and what may be safe before we're shooting at them. Right. And I think, too, it's hurting our ducks, too, because a lot of these landowners that are that are you know putting out early water and catching ducks early, now you've got pressure from the white front hunting going on, and it's affecting some of the earlier duck numbers that you're seeing, too.
1: Mm. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. you talk talking about rain. That's what gets ducks killed. I mean, uh, place that we hunt over there at Mr. Leland's, if it's dry, you know, we were just covered up with them. But first time it rains, a great big rain, that river gets out, it sucks some ducks off of that place.
0: They there. know it I mean it it doesn't even take that big of a rain. they know that precipitation means fresh food and, and new locations, and they're going to spread out same as us you know dry year we're doing really well when it rains they're going to scatter out they'll come back you know when some of that slash water's gone but um rain rain kills them and gets them out of their cycle
1: hmm. that's a good way i I've, I've, I've always known that rain affects them, but you know rain kills ducks i that's a That's a good way of putting it to make it make sense yeah. to me.
0: Well, I think you can tell, you know, when you're talking to somebody, you know, it seems like most hunters like a sunny bluebird day. You run in the sun but, man, we need a good rainy day. Well, you can tell kind of a lot about a, a person's place that they hunt based on what kind of day they prefer. So just like you said, you know, they go somewhere when it rains, uh, and we're not necessarily one of those places, although I've killed a bunch of ducks in the rain. I'd rather hunt in the rain in the clouds, but, <laughs> right. uh, but that's a good indicator of kind of, where they're going or, or what kind of hunting somebody does based on what they like their preferences.
1: Gotcha. All right. I've got a couple more things I want to touch on before we wrap up here. Um, I, I want to touch on your your Ducks Unlimited um, deal that you, you go to Washington, D.C. with, correct?
0: Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Um, actually pretty honored to even be asked to go do that. Uh, we went up to D.C. Myself and the, my podcast partner, Brent Birch, We went up there this spring to, uh, to help talk about the farm bill, the the need for conservation dollars in the farm bill. So we talked about WRE specifically. Um, and man, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. I had to give a briefing to each side of the house about WRE and marginal farmland. So, uh, I know we've met and talked a bunch. Uh, I'm sure you can't imagine me talking to that many politicians That's a little <laughs> bit out of my element.
1: Wow. I'm, I don't get nervous a whole lot, but I believe I get nervous <laughs> in front of that bunch. I, you know,
0: <laughs> Yeah. luckily it was in a small conference room. It wasn't on the floor in front of everybody. So it wasn't that big a deal, but I uh, still made me nervous. I sent my wife a picture. I was like, look at all these people. I got to talk in front of it. <laughs> um. It was funny. Um, my, my oldest boy, he was, uh, I guess he was in third grade, so he was doing a project. They had to pick a, uh, I guess, some type of habitat and stand up in front of the class and and talk about it. Well, we naturally picked prairie pothole, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that was kind of a cheat code, having me as his dad. So we went kind of through all that. and It was really cool to talk to him about it and explain to him where our ducks come from and how important all this stuff is. He's nervous about talking in front of his classmates. And I was like, well, buddy, I gotta go to Washington D.C. and talk to a bunch of people. Like, you'll be fine in front of your classmates. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, but that was cool, man. You don't realize, um, and I'll, I'll plug Delta too. They were doing a bunch of fly-ins as well, man. You, I, I feel like a lot of times, I know myself. Like, I look at Ducks Unlimited and Delta Waterfowl, and you think, you know, the banquets and the dinners, right? The volunteers, right? And that's what, a lot of what they do. That's where they raise the money. You know, that's where a lot of this stuff happens. I never realized the full impact those organizations had until I went to D.C. I mean, like Ducks Unlimited has an office right across in the Capitol, and they've got they've got folks up there, you know, that are working hard every day just on the on the federal government level, you know, trying to make sure this money is allocated, it gets, you know, we get enough funding for these programs, and it's I mean we're talking one, you know, one piece of legislature that impacts more ducks than, than I ever can or that we have in 70 years here. You know, it really kind of put into perspective just how, how big that is um, and how much those two groups do for us.
1: Right. That is, that's, that's cool. You know, cause <laughs> those guys have always caught, you know, a lot of flack, you know, why don't we give the ducks unlimited? They're just going to go spend my money up North somewhere and not help us guys around here. And it's always there was the word here but man they're doing so much up there that affects down here that it's unreal and i i guess to try to educate people on that would be a, would be a big deal
0: so. yeah they do a lot um i don't know if you've got a chance to see it but i think it's uh maybe the wings over water film they did the imax film have you heard of that i don't think so uh if, if, you, if you can go somewhere and go see it, go check it out. They've got it uh, on their website. I think it shows where it's showing. Uh, we got to see it in Little Rock last year. Uh, George Dunklin helped put that on. Man, a really, really cool film about the importance of the prairie pottle country and you know what it's going to take to preserve that place. And I know uh, we interviewed George the other day for our show. He mentioned that, uh, that they're going to do one. They're working on one right now out west, and there's going to be another one done on – the Vanishing Paradise in Louisiana. So they do a lot more. They catch a lot of flack. And I think just so, it's so disappointing when someone's like, oh man, all these do you you know, corn pod, all this, I mean, they like black helicopters flying corn on them. I mean, it's just wild accusations. Wow. Um, I mean, you're nailing it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you've heard it, right? Yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah, I
1: mean, That's what I was talking I, about.
0: Yeah. I, man, I'm like, Man, no. Show me where. Like, if you think that's happening, show me where. You know, no. They they do tremendous work, uh, and I was uh, honored to be asked to go do that. And it was really eye opening and really cool to see on that side. I've got a, I've got three young boys and I got a little daughter too. And uh, one of mine is is pretty charismatic. He says he wants to be a, a game warden. And I'm like, man, maybe you should be a biologist. I don't know if you want to be on the enforcement <laughs> side of things, but I've told him. I came back from DC. I'm like, look, man, you need to you need to go to Mississippi State. Get your water for bi- water for biology degree and then go to DC and work for Ducks Unlimited. Like I think that would be a just a really cool career path. So right. uh, I'm trying to he's eight now, but I'm trying to nudge him that way.
1: That's cool. That's cool. All right. So um talking about Mr. George Dunklin, just talk about your podcast that you guys really just started. Um just getting going. The <laughs> standard sportsman podcast.
0: That's right. Yeah, man. Appreciate the plug. Yeah. We, uh, I guess we've been on almost two weeks now, maybe no. Yeah. Almost two weeks. Yeah. we dumped four episodes to start with and then kind of been following up. So, um, just trying to to find an Avenue to talk more about kind of the conversation you and I are having today. Um, it's one of those things, you know, we're all, I guess we're all tasked with something, right? Like you, you love training dogs because that, Obviously, you enjoy teaching them and seeing them grow and I think as hunters, we all had this desire to, to teach the next generation right like you, that's why so many guys love to take kids um so I guess the podcast world is just kind of a way to maybe to reach more people than we would in any other you know basis like talking about the breeding population talking about things that maybe someone else doesn't know or maybe maybe takes for granted or maybe they think there's black helicopters flying corn in the Midwest, you know, <laughs> um, just uh, a way to kind of reach more people. And I think we're, that was one thing my grandfather always told me, you know, like that we are stewards of the land. We are tasked with taking care of it. Cause it's, it's not ours. It doesn't belong to us. We're just, we're just here to protect it while we're on earth. And, you know, that's something that really stuck with me at a young age. It's been with me ever since. Um, doesn't belong to us it's just our job to to make sure it goes to the next generation so mm-hmm. i think kind of that passion is driven both of us uh to to talk about that talk about some you know, topics that are interesting we try to have fun and, and talk about other stuff too but basically we want to be a conservation-minded podcast where you can kind of stay abreast of what's going on in the in the waterfowl world
1: yep that's so good and I'm thankful for guys like Mr. Bill Byers that that instilled that in you so you can carry it on too and you're so passionate about it and that that that's pretty cool you know that, that he's going to live on forever through you and 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 the way he brought you up
0: I've been really blessed to uh, to to have him and my father as role models and to grow up in that environment and I can't imagine uh I can't imagine doing anything else. And it's just, it was a, a really cool experience as a kid to, to have that environment to grow up in a
1: hundred percent, a hundred percent. So, all right. So let's, as, as, let's wrap this thing up, but like tell everybody where they can find you on Instagram and, and, and tell everybody yes. about, so, about Bill Byers Hunter Club and how you can come hunt with you and stuff like that. All
0: right. So, yeah, you can find the, uh, you can find us on our website at dot com. Um, That'll kind of lead you to every information you need in regards to the, the guided hunts uh again we're going to enter our seventieth year here, so we've seen a lot of stuff come and go, but uh managed to somehow stand the test of time i hadn't ruined it yet it's incredible um, that's incredible to <laughs> me seventy it's pretty hats off. it's pretty neat yeah it really it really is i'm I'm looking forward to our seventy fifth year hopefully we're still around uh maybe something kind of cool that year seems like a a bigger anniversary anyway, but that's cool um humbled to to still be a part of that so uh you can check that out you can find us uh, on social media at bill Byers Hunter club or you can check out the podcast at the standard sportsman on social media or the standard sportsman.com
1: 100 percent. good stuff man I, I i think people if if you like this type of content that you will love the standard sportsman podcast and um i know i've enjoyed it yeah. i'm always looking for something else to listen to you know down there in the mornings I've a, I got an hour, hour and a half of work before I ever touch a dog, you know, cleaning kennels and loading and make sure everybody's healthy and, and looks good. Yeah. And I throw a podcast in and listen every day. So I run out of stuff.
0: And uh, You do. I'm in mean, the same way. I mean, I found yours and consumed all of it there. In a, I mean, not too many weeks. I just couldn't get enough of it. I'm a big fan of, of your show. Uh, Thank you, brother. But it's, uh, you know, it's we're all learning different stuff. and I'm learning. I guess the same way you inform people about dogs, that's kind of our goal with the other, man. Just just pass that information out there and, and talk about man, it's just fun to talk about stuff you enjoy.
1: Right. And I I, I tell you another thing I'd love to do is I would love people to 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 enjoy what they do and not be worried about take your pictures, but don't be worried about what's in the picture. You know, as long that's as right. there's smiles and good people around you, that's number one
0: and uh, yeah that's the one thing we try to you know and we, we've done really well with our clients we've got a great clientele we typically have very few openings every year um you know we talked about pressure so we don't we don't guide 60 days out of the year we're not going to run that hard we don't run we, we like people to, to have exclusive use of the lodge and the place when they're here and that kind of you know that increases the, the enjoyment of the experience and that's what we're after i mean it's not it's not about you know, full limits every day. Cause we don't do that. We're not able to, I wish, I wish we could, but that's not reality. Um, so we, we control the controllable. We want to make sure everyone has the best experience they can while they're here. And that's, what's important. And I think that's what's kept us around for 70 years.
1: Right. That'll, that'll take you a long, long ways, long ways. So, well, yeah. I, I look forward to getting up and spending some time with you. Um, I know that's going to be yeah. a good time and, uh, I look well, forward have to come this. see that
0: young pup go to work.
1: See old young Rock get out there and get after him. So,
0: yeah, he's not bugging the bugging you to
1: death, is he? Oh no, no, he's uh, he's adjusting <laughs> well and uh, loves to chase it, and he seems pretty smart. So we got off, off on the right foot. We're excited. We're excited about him. So, but thank you so much for taking your time, taking maybe more time than you probably a thought you had to a lot um, to come on and do this with me.
0: Oh, man, thanks for having me. I enjoy talking about it. Uh, I always enjoy talking
1: ducks. 100%, man. Well, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Doghouse Podcast, and we will see you guys soon. And, guys, don't forget, go check out our new website, thedoghousepod.com. Um, you can submit questions, see all of our guys that sponsor our show. Click, 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 boom, go buy some stuff from those guys and see us on on the face page over there, Facebook the Dog House Podcast with Adam and Jimmy you can contact us there, we're going to try to put out some content and stuff there, thanks for listening appreciate y'all